praise you, our loving Heavenly Father, that you speak, that your words are true and they bring light and life to guide us and restore us to yourself. Please would this word be refreshment to us this morning. Would we delight to hear you speak? Would we not resist your words? Would you turn our hearts again through the Lord Jesus to you and to your glorious plan for us, that we might be encouraged for the week ahead and established in your ways. Amen. Well, lies are powerful things, aren't they? Consider advertising. I'm sorry if you are in advertising. I'm not suggesting you are a liar by trade, but... If you buy this brand of Italian coffee maker, you will be just like George Clooney. You've seen those adverts, right? And it works, doesn't it? And not that you become like George Clooney, but you do buy the coffee maker in the hope that you will be. We know that we, in our daily lives, that that little white lie, implying a good lie, can smooth over those awkward social situations. I mean, you don't have to tell your friend she looks fat in that dress, do you? Well, in John 8, verse 44, Jesus describes the work of the devil like this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. Murder through lies. Now, that might sound extreme, particularly when little white lies are concerned, but consider how lies work. They paint a a picture, a new story over the top of reality. A new interpretation of the way the world works so that they obscure the truth in order to deceive us into living differently. You believe the lies and you behave differently. Just this week, uh, Michael Barrymore was in in the news. You may not know who that is. And the reason you don't know who that is is because his career was, uh, he was a very famous TV personality until 2001 when he was accused of rape and murder and has been cleared. But the fact that the, the, the case went through the, new, the press destroyed his career and he's been uh, compensated royally for that uh, in the courts at the moment. Think of any celebrity who's been accused of some appalling crime and then been acquitted and the damage that the lie has done to their reputation. Uh, Lies can change the world. I spent just half an hour this week uh, googling cyberbullying. I couldn't really cope with it much more than that. Uh, One comment that caught my attention particularly was from a girl who said, I knew that what they were saying was lies. But I began believing what people were saying about me. If you hear a lie enough times, from enough sources, it can sound a lot like the truth. And we begin to question, maybe I am wrong after all. Maybe I am worthless. Maybe I should just end it all. And in a very real sense, lies become murder. Jesus says there is no truth in the devil. And it was so from the beginning. From Genesis 3, in fact which is our passage this morning, or the first half of it. Here we encounter the first lies, the first sin, and and death comes into the world. We'll see that much more clearly next week as we look at the rest of the chapter. Uh, Here is a, a, a conflict between truth and lies, and the question is, who is going to give you the right view of reality? Who is going to tell you the truth? 
And what we see here is uh, the prototype for all sin in the rest of the Bible and in the rest of human history. The same pattern has followed again and again and again. You go to any passage of scripture that shows a lie, a, a sin, and you'll see the same pattern of lies being believed, and you'll see it in your own heart too. Perhaps you're here visiting us this week, and uh, this talk of sin is difficult to comprehend. Uh, It's an alien concept, and what you do know of it is what you've heard in the movies, and it doesn't sound particularly good. Uh, You're not really sure what to make of it. Well, let me say this is good news for you, because this is the passage that defines what sin is for us. It defines the way uh, that, that we are corrupted in our hearts in a way that we can understand. Uh, The language may be alien, but the experience is very real, and we will recognise it as very normal. I want to see this morning that although the sin may appear to be a very small thing, the lies involved are very, very big. And as we'll see next week, the consequences have been catastrophic. But, But the truth is, you don't need me to read on in Genesis 3 to see how catastrophic they are. Because you only have to look at the press, don't you? You only have to look into your own life to see the effects of sin and rebellion against God. All the things that Claire was leading us in our prayers over in other parts of the world. Not very distant from us, actually. I had to get in touch with a friend of mine who... Uh, lives just a, a short hop, maybe a couple of miles from one of the terrorist attacks in Spain this week to make sure he and his uh, church family were, were okay. Praise God, they were fine. Uh, to understand this passage properly, to see just how destructive these lies are, we have to see them in the context of what we've been looking at the last five weeks in Genesis 1 and 2. Because the picture of reality that is being painted here in chapter 3 is the very opposite of the truth. So let's begin with our first point. The sin appears to be small. And just stop and think about that for a moment. And the question you might be asking as we come to this passage is, what's the big deal? I mean, if Adam had killed Eve, we'd understand that was a really bad thing to do. Okay, fair enough. But all they do is eat a piece of fruit. I mean, who hasn't snuck a biscuit out of the tin when their mum wasn't looking, even though it was close to dinner time and it would spoil their dinner? It's no big deal, is it? It's just a piece of fruit. And I think that's what makes this passage so pointed for us this morning. See, if that first rebellion was was a big sin, something that we could all go boo-hiss about, we could all rest safe in the knowledge this morning that we've not done those things, unless, of course, you have. We could all say, I'm not that bad. That's a problem that's out there, not a problem that's in here. But if God thinks that this sin, this taking a piece of fruit sin, this petty theft is that bad that it destroys the world, then we need to pay attention, don't we? Because every one of us has this sort of corruption in our hearts all the time. And it means that God takes our sin seriously too. I think Moses signals for us the, the, the seriousness of this passage with two little phrases that you might have missed as it was being read so well by Vix. Just let me show you two uh, little phrases that I think uh, draw this out for us. The first is there at the end of verse 6. Just look down with me, would you? Four little words. Who was with her? 
She gave some to her husband, who was with her. Four words, easy to miss. Just imagine, close your eyes and imagine in your mind's eye the scene. If I asked you to, to draw a picture of verses 1 to 5, what do you draw? Who are the characters in this, the picture? I imagine you draw two characters, the serpent and Eve. That's who's doing all the talking in verses 1 to 5. But those four words tell us that Adam is there too. Silent, passive, completely. Says nothing, does nothing until Eve hands him the fruit and he follows her lead. That's the first important uh, point that the, the, the writer makes. The second is there in verse 1. The words, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. See, God doesn't feature heavily in this passage, does he? At least, uh, he, he, he features as the bad guy. He's the character who is at uh, Yabu Histat. But here in verse 1, Moses reminds us that God was the creator. God had made the world. God created all of the animals. And the serpent was simply one of those creatures. He is part of the fabric of creation that Adam is meant to be ruling over. And so there's the structure implicit, isn't it? God makes the world. He appoints Adam to rule over it under his rule. He creates Eve to help Adam to rule the creation. That's the chain of authority. But here in Genesis 3, that is completely inverted. Did you see that? The the creature pushes mankind to reject the word of God and to make the word of the serpent ruler instead. More than that, he goes to mankind, he goes through the wife, go through the woman, so that she takes authority over her husband. It is a complete reversal of the way God intended it to be. It is completely decreating the creation that God had made. See, eating the fruit may be a small gesture, something that we would dismiss as irrelevant, but it symbolises a complete undoing of the created order. And the way this reversal is achieved is through some massive lies. Let's look at those together. What is attacked here is God. The truthfulness of God's word and the goodness of God's character. And it starts small, doesn't it, as it often does with us. Just a question, really, verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a question, isn't it? Not a statement. It's not a a direct challenge exactly, but it smuggles the first lie into the garden, doesn't it? Who had said this? Who said that God had said? Where did that idea even come from? Out of the serpent's own mind. And with that implicit lie comes a whole freight of ideas. How could God put you in this beautiful place full of juicy, sweet fruit and not let you eat of it? It's in the town where I went to school. There's a there's a sweet shop. I imagine it's still there. I've not been back for a long time, but you pass it on the way to school. It's one of those old-fashioned ones, you know, with the sort of lead-lined windows and all the little tubs of all the kind of sweets you'd want. Imagine your mum puts you in the sweet shop and says you can't touch anything. That's what he's saying. All that delicious fruit, and you've got to live on broccoli and swede. Blah! I mean, actually, I quite like broccoli, but you get the point. 
How completely unfair to put you in such an amazing place and to be so restrictive. Of course, he did no such thing. And he knows this, but the seed has been planted, hasn't it? And so we get to verse 2. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, or you will die. And you want to go, brilliant. You stick it to him. Take the truth and defeat the lie here, Eve. Well done. But, but she doesn't quite say that, does she? She adds something quite inexplicable. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now, a quick look back at 2 verse 17 shows that that's not what God had said. He'd simply said, if you eat the fruit, you will die. There's plenty of other fruit to choose from. Lots of other trees, lots of choice. You don't need to worry about this one. Just don't eat this one. So where does you must not touch it come from? Maybe she made it up. Maybe in her own heart she's agreeing with the serpent. Yes, God has been really restrictive. Maybe Adam and Eve had a conversation. We're not to eat that fruit. Perhaps we best not touch it. Or even look at it. We'll just ignore that fruit. We do that, don't we? The Pharisees did it all the time. Here is God's law. And to make sure we absolutely have no chance of breaking that, we're going to put 15 other laws around it, hedging it in so we don't get anywhere close to it. And so God becomes far more restrictive and far more uh, limiting on our freedoms than he actually is. And we do the same today, don't we, in different parts of the world. Some of you may have grown up in places where uh, the, the simple law in the church is you stay away from alcohol. You never touch a drop. The Christian temperance movement of the 19th century was, was famous for this. And there are whole parts of the church in different parts of the world where you cannot drink. I was in Uganda back in, uh, at New Year. And the church there has a, a very simple rule. Christians don't drink. You don't get seen in a pub. You don't go anywhere near alcohol. And the reason is that Uganda is the most drunk country in the world. And one of the pastors there said to me, look, we're just not very good at moderation here. Once you start anything, you just keep going. And so it's safer for us not to drink anything. We do it, don't we? We take God's command not to be drunk and we make it stricter and stricter in order to make sure we absolutely go nowhere near that thing. That seems to be what's going on here. God is made out to be much stricter than he really is. Eve doesn't recognise it as Adam's rule or her rule. She attributes it to God and says God is more stingy with his good things than he really is. And the implication is there, isn't it? God's a small sport. Why would he put me in this place with these lovely things around me and not allow me to have them? And we do the same thing with all sorts of things, don't we? And the serpent becomes emboldened. What stops them eating the fruit? Well, it's the threat of death, isn't it? That's what God said. Don't eat the fruit or you will die. There's a simple if-then statement. If you're into programming, it's very simple, isn't it? Okay? If you do this, this will happen. So here he doesn't just question God. He absolutely refutes his word, doesn't he? States the exact opposite. You will not certainly die. You certainly will not die. It's absolutely the case that you won't die. See what we say? God's word is untrustworthy. God is a liar. 
And there's no consequences, therefore, to the rebellion. He, he says, you will die, you won't die. There's no consequences. You can do what you'd like. God is all mouth and no trousers. There's no consequences. Which then raises the question, why is God making this threat at all? To shore up his position. He's grasping. He's holding you down. That's what the little word for at the beginning of verse 5 tells us. Here is the explanation for God's actions. He's telling you lies to keep you in your place for God knows. Well, what does God know that Eve is only now finding out? What is the serpent giving her that God has kept back from her? Here's what it is. When you eat uh, from the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't want you to see properly. Doesn't want you to experience the fullness of life. He wants to keep that for himself. He alone knows good and evil and you don't get to find out. But why should he? Why should he? Now, I need to sort of take a sideways step here and say, what does it mean to know good and evil? It cannot mean knowing whether something is right and wrong. Because Adam and Eve plainly know what is right and wrong already. They know a great deal about what is good, everything God has put around them, and they know what, at least one thing that is bad, eating the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. They've been told what right and wrong is. The word knowing here has the sense of determining or deciding. God gets to decide what is right and wrong. And the serpent says, you should get to make that decision. For yourself. Do you see what the serpent's saying? God is evil. He's keeping back for himself the right to determine right and wrong. Holding back with vain threats that will never come true. He's a liar. He's selfish. He's a spoiled sport bully who is clinging on to power. He doesn't love you. I don't even think he likes you. And that is the line of attack the devil has taken ever since throughout human history, all through the rest of scripture, and certainly in our lives. God is not good. His word is untrustworthy. And there are no consequences if you disobey him. Three lies. Now just pause for a moment. Be honest with yourself. Isn't that what passes through your mind just fleetingly when you're tempted to sin? You know God's word. Do not get angry. Do not say those things. Do not go to that place. Do not do that thing. Whatever it happens to be for you, you can fill in the blanks yourself. But a voice in your ear says, it's not a good rule, is it? It's intended to keep you down, to make you a slave, to restrict your freedom, to enjoy everything the world offers. And the only consequence for you of doing that, of saying that, is victory. Have it your way. You'll be free, liberated. It's the lie we've been trained to believe from birth. But now when you actually step back and, and think about it in the cold light of day, it's, it's so grubby, isn't it? It's so patently untrue. And it becomes all the more obvious if we look at the context. If we read Genesis 3, 1 to 6 by itself, it's bad enough. But put it in the context of chapters 1 and 2. What was that refrain all the way through Genesis chapter 1? It was good, it was good, it was very good. God made the world good. It was good because he made it. 
It's good because he is good. God cannot do bad because he is good. God knows good and evil in the sense of what the serpent is saying here because he defines good and evil. The world has goodness in it because the good God who made it is good. He gets to define what good and evil is according to his own person. But he didn't just make the world good, he blessed it, didn't he? Blessed the creatures, blessed the people, said, go forth, multiply, fill the earth with goodness. Abundance of fruitfulness, of colour and variety and texture of every kind, beauty and fruitfulness. Look at what his word did. Look at how the truthfulness of his word produced exactly what God intended. And it was good. He is good. His word is good. It produces a perfect world just as God intended. Then he made man in his image. Isn't that the irony of ironies in our passage this morning? The serpent says, God wants to keep you down. He doesn't want you to be like him. You'll be like him when you take the fruit. But the truth is, we were already like him. Already made in his image. Endowed with wonderful dignity and purpose at the pinnacle of God's creation. Just not in the way that the serpent offers. Psalm 8 is a wonderful meditation on that point of being created in the image of God. But it's got this tragic note as well. Because if you take God out of the picture... Man stops being the pinnacle of creation, doesn't he? How many of our secular friends will say, people are just animals. Without God, there is no dignity to humanity. I was talking uh, just a few weeks ago to a a doctor at St George's, an atheist, uh, happy to admit that. He said, yeah, people are just animals. People are just walking computers, actually, was what he said. We're just interesting machines. He was actually almost looking forward to the day when we produce artificial intelligence robots to take over from us. It's just the next stage of evolution in his mind. People have no particular dignity. That's the lie the devil brings in here. That means that we treat each other so shockingly. The serpent offered a chance to be like God. And in our rebellion, we kill off the thought of God and become like the animals. A lie that brings death. It's a definition of a tragedy, isn't it? What happens in this passage. And then God puts man in the garden, a beautiful garden, full of fruit and vegetables. The the, the starting point for a global Eden that was was going to fill the earth with, with beauty and wonder, abundant food, shelter, four rivers flowing through the garden, giving it plenty of water, one restriction only. One expression of God's authority over man. So much expression of God's generosity and his abundant faithfulness. One expression of his authority. The good creator giving good boundaries to allow human beings to flourish in his world. And it's at that very limitation that the serpent attacks. And we're tempted, aren't we, to sit here and think, what a pair of idiots! Surely it was obvious to them that God is good. That he'd blessed them, that he wanted the best for them. They risked everything for a piece of fruit. Muppets. And then you have to ask, are we any better, really? Are we any better? And for sure, we don't live in Eden, not, not yet. 
we have the promise of a better place. The garden city that will, will fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. And God has blessed us remarkably, even in this fallen world, with, with salvation, with the church, with each other, with the presence of his Holy Spirit with us. And still we think we know better. We want more. We're not content, are we, with the things that God gives us as his good gifts in his perfect plan for us. And so we rebel, like Adam and Eve. We believe, sometimes perhaps, that God is permissive, that Anything goes, it doesn't matter. There's no consequences. That he's too weak or too evil to hold us to account for our own weakness and evil. Of course, we'd hate to live in a universe where there really were no consequences for anything, wouldn't we? I mean, if there were no consequences for anybody else, that would be a disaster. If there was no police force, no judiciary, no justice anywhere... It's a terrifying thought, but we like the idea somehow that we're special, don't we? In our weakest moments. We like the idea that there'll be no consequences for us. Which is not a very big step from saying, I'm God, and I'll have the universe on my terms. Thank you very much. It is to believe the most devastating lies. Here is reality, and we paint over the top the opposite. That's what the devil whispers in our ears. Evil. God is evil. He hates you. Do what you want. There are no consequences. See, our sins may be small sins. They may not uh, get the the police tapping on our door and, and put us in chains, but they rest on a lie which has massive implications. If we live in rebellion against him, if that's our habit, and let me make that distinction here, very, very plain. We all sin. We'll come to that in a moment. But if our lives are built on a right to do things our way, if we ignore what God says, if we treat him as though these lies are truth, we need to know that God is true to his word and we will die. We'll be separated from him forever at the second death. And if you don't believe that, just look at the world around you. Just look at the death and the carnage that is everywhere and is horrible. As a society, we, we, we pretend it's not true, don't we? we? We think that medicine can solve all of our ills. We turn back the clock with lotions and potions and surgeries. We, we lock the elderly away in old people's homes, out of sight, so we don't have to look at them as they crumble into the dust. And then we pretend that death isn't real, but it is the most real thing in the world. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And only a fool believes there are no consequences for our rebellion against our king. Which begs the question, doesn't it, has the devil won? Did he win at Genesis 3 by introducing these powerful lies that bring death, by corrupting reality, by by painting these lies over the surface of reality and causing us to walk in them, By bringing death to a world that was teeming with good and abundant life, has the devil won? Moreover, it begs a deeper question, doesn't it? Where did he come from anyway? Because if the devil wasn't part of the plan, well then at best this world is plan B, isn't it? Or or C, or, or Z. Is the world off script, perhaps? That might be the question we're asking. If God has a plan and the devil has corrupted it, are we, are we nowhere near what God intended? 
we might ask the question, if sin can so corrupt the planet, is my sin able to do that? If I stumble and fall, can I fall off God's plan for me? He promises salvation in Christ, but can I end up nowhere near? So we need to be clear where this this story arc goes. And the answer is no. Make no mistake, Adam and Eve suffer the consequences of their actions. They make a choice. They receive the consequences of their actions, but it was still part of the plan. The Bible doesn't finally tell us how the devil came to fall in the first place. That's in the mystery of God, and we have to accept that there are limits on what God has told us. But it's clear throughout the Bible that the devil is on a leash. I think it was Calvin who said, the devil is powerful, but he is God's devil. He's, in, he's on a leash. He never does anything that God doesn't allow. If you're not persuaded by that, just read Job chapters 1 and 2. The devil cannot do what he wants, only what God allows him. Or consider Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. We'll come to Ephesians in our small groups this year. For God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And we get that God wants us to be holy and blameless. That's what Adam and Eve were in Genesis 2, right? That's the plan. But when he says God chose us in him, in Christ, that phrase means through the cross and through faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection for us, his saving work. God always intended redemption through the cross. When was that? Was that after Genesis 3? Was that God's sort of plan B? Well, no, God planned the fall. Before the creation of the world... God chose us to be redeemed in Christ. Before an atom existed, God planned that you and I would trust in Jesus. That we're sitting here now listening to this passage. God planned it all. God planned the fall of Adam and Eve. He planned the devil. He planned salvation in Jesus. He planned the new creation. He planned it all from the beginning. He planned that the Eden we lost there would be restored to us. A garden city that would be global. A place where we really will be holy and blameless in his sight. Only this time, there will be a, a, a people vaster than anyone can number. The original creation's purpose fulfilled through Jesus. In other words, Adam and Eve sin. Yes, it brought consequences for them... But it didn't screw up the plan. It was part of the plan. God always intended this. Creation, decreation here in Genesis 3. Salvation through Christ. New creation at the end of time. And we even now are called new creations. Restored somewhat to the image of God. By the spirit of God living in our hearts. And I take it therefore. That neither your sins nor mine. If Adam and Eve sin couldn't corrupt the plan. That neither your sin nor mine. Can send the plan off course either. Now, I've said already, sinning is is a a bad thing. Choosing to sin is a dangerous path to step onto. And let me say it clearly, if that is the trajectory of your life, that you choose active rebellion in your choices, if you ignore God and care not for his words, you can never inherit the kingdom of God like that. Because sin really matters. But as Christians, we still sin, don't we? We, we still actively sin. We still choose to sin. Hope, 
it's not the tone of our lives, it's not the trajectory of our lives, but it is a deviation from the course that God has set before us, and we do it often. And when we sin, there are still consequences, perhaps in our relationships. An angry parent who has done some damage to their relationship with their child. Uh, the, the, the word spoken out of turn to our boss that means they're in reprimands. There are still consequences to our sins. But those consequences do not involve us being cut off from God because Christ has died for those sins. And so we stand uh, constantly in God's presence through Christ. Our sins do not throw the plan off track. No, this world is not the unending joy that Eden was. But the new creation will be better. Better than Eden for once having been so broken. Because we'll know God truly as the one who has done everything to rescue his people. And because having experienced suffering and tears, we'll know what it is to have no more tears. And we will know God truly, fully, even as we are fully known. And there will be no whisper of a lie in our ears, as there so often is here. And sin will be ended forever. Why was the devil let in? In his mind, to disrupt God's plan. But in God's mind, to fulfil it. This passage is a tragedy, but it is not a tragedy out of God's hands. Is this the best of all possible worlds, as the philosophers like to ask? If by best we mean the most pleasurable and most enjoyable and the most free, no, of course it's not. That day is still to come. That world is coming. And it will be glorious. But if we mean, is this world the most fitting for God to achieve his purpose of redeeming a people and glorifying himself, then I want to say yes. Absolutely, this is the best of all possible worlds for achieving God's purpose. So what do we do, friends, when the lie starts whispering in our ears? What do we do to stand for God, to reject, to push back the lies, to unveil the reality that is underneath the, the, the story that's being painted on top. When the world says, everybody's doing it, get on board, and our own hearts say, you deserve this, and, and, and God is being so unfair keeping you from that relationship or that thing. Well, we remember Jesus. Particularly, we remember Jesus in Luke 4. If you know the passage, uh, you don't have to turn it up now, but perhaps go and have a, a reflection on it later today. Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus as the new Adam. Not in a garden this time, not in a garden full of fruit, but 40 days in the wilderness with no food or drink. And the devil makes the same temptation, doesn't he? Turn this stone into bread. Feed yourself. God is clearly keeping it back from you. God clearly doesn't have your best interests at heart. He says, worship me and I'll give you everything, even though God has promised everything to his son. A false gospel, false truth. A test God. See if he really loves you. Throw yourself off the top of the, the temple and see if he catches you. And each time Jesus responds with the word of God. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8. What is it that enables Jesus to stand up under the most ferocious temptations? And make no mistake, Jesus is tempted worse than we are because temptation is always worse when you resist it than it is when you give into it. 
Jesus experienced temptation in a way that, that we perhaps never will do. What enables him to stand? It is his rock-solid conviction that God is good and that his word is absolutely, unequivocally, and in every single sense, true. And when the lies try to paint a new story over the top of reality, a new narrative that will encourage us to walk away from God, we need to see past the paint as well. We need to see the truth that lies underneath. We need to know God's word as well as we can. I take it that's why as Christians we grow up to maturity and grow better at resisting temptations. As we know God's word better, as we, as we see the lies for what they are and the truth for what it is, so we're enabled to stand on the truth. We need to bring it to mind constantly. You know that, that one of my friends once said in a talk, you know, if I miss my daily devotions, uh, the first day God notices, the second day I notice, and the third day everybody else notices. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? It's quite a nice way to put it. But we need to be constantly bringing the truth to mind. We need to help each other. That's why we meet together in our Bible studies week by week. Get to know each other and get to know the Bible together and be able to say to each other, this passage will help you to resist that temptation you're fighting. This will help you to stand. This will help you in that conversation with that difficult person. This is the truth and we need to hold each other on it. We need to remember who God is. Be convinced of who he is. Be willing to stand on who he is. Remember who we are. We are sinners. Luther said we are justified sinners. And he's right. But that's not our identity anymore, brothers and sisters. We are not sinners. That is not our primary name anymore. We are Christians. Children of our Heavenly Father. We have a new identity And a new capacity by the Spirit to live for him. To believe the truth. To be fired in our hearts about who God is, what he's doing, where we're going. And what it means to be his people. So that we can have victory over some of these sins that dog us. We will never be free of sin and temptation this side of the grave. Until Jesus returns. It's a thing to long for and pray for. But we are being changed. We are able to stand. We are able to hear the devil's lies for what they are. And know that God alone is true. Believe his word. He is doing good for you. If he has put restrictions on on the things that you would love to do, know that it is for your good. For the flourishing of his church. For the flourishing of his purpose. The devil will lie to you. Don't believe his lies. Let's pray. Our Father, you are mighty, you are glorious, you teach us truth and we so often ignore it and we regret this and we long that you would help us to see past the lies the devil wants to whisper in our ears, help us to hear them loudly for what they are and help us to hear your voice more clearly, help us to walk in your ways that we might rejoice in your plans, your purposes, your ways, that we might Uh, delight to be your people, serve each other, build each other up. We long to be different. We long to not make the mistakes of Adam and Eve. 
And Lord, keep us faithfully on the path while we look forward to that day when you will wipe away all the consequences of our sin, death and tears and pain and suffering. You'll wipe away sin itself that we might be perfectly in the image of the Lord Jesus. Bring that day to bear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.